I want to begin this morning's message with a confession. Can I confess something? Can I be open with you all? I can't stand slow drivers. I mean, just, you know, putting along when I've got places to be and I get behind them. And I know this says something more about my heart than it does about them. But still, my attitude is get up to speed or get out of the way. If it says 40, you go 45. You go 40. You go 40. Your pastor says go 40. Follow the speed limit. You know, I once told my wife, Heather, that this is the reason the Lord didn't give me force powers because I would just fling people off the road. And the worst case are those who are driving hot rods like broken down Volkswagen bugs. Why'd you spend the money? Get out of the way. But you know, we can do this spiritually. We can get in the way. We can get in the way of what God is doing. We can get in the way of our own spiritual growth. We can get in the way of someone else's spiritual growth. And sometimes God could be telling us, gently so, but telling us, you need to get out of the way. Now, as we continue through Mark, you know, we saw last week that Jesus, for the second time, he told his disciples the plan, going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, going to be killed and rise again. And there was fear in the disciples, you may remember. They did not respond. And then, of course, after that, they got into that argument about who was the greatest. Jesus confronted them and he told them to be great, you have to be last of all. You have to be servant of all. And last week we talked about servanthood is the mark of greatness. It's the mark of a true disciple. Today's text, we have not left that conversation. Jesus continues talking, and he's going to continue to talk to them, but the topic is going to switch a little bit from servanthood to what prevents servanthood, namely sin. The text deals with the topic of sin this morning, or stumbling, and I'm going to get into that a little bit, but it's, it's moving from the direction of following Jesus to following one's own direction. It's essentially getting in the way of what God's trying to do. So I want to challenge us this morning, and I'm including myself in this, I want to challenge us to get out of the way. What does it look like, though? How can I recognize when I am in the way? How do I know when I'm crossing that line? That's what I want to talk about this morning. So here's your first point. We're in the way of God's work when we encourage others to sin. We're in the way of God's work when we're encouraging others into sin. Read with me. I want to read verse 42 again. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now remember, we're continuing the discussion from last week. This is not a, a different time. This is not a different setting. Jesus continues talking. And you may remember what had just happened is that John had told Jesus about the man the disciples had stopped casting out demons because he wasn't following them. And Jesus, you may remember, he said to John, don't stop him. Whoever is not against us is for us. 
And then we hit verse 42, and Jesus is continuing that same idea. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones. Now, you might be tempted to think when he says little ones, he's referring back to verse 36, where Jesus took a young child into his lap to use that child as an example of who to serve. But actually, that's not necessarily what he's talking about. This next, verse 42, should be understood coming right out of verse 41, that Jesus is still addressing John's question. When he says, one of these little ones who believes in me, he's saying, fellow Christians. He's saying, whoever causes a fellow Christian to stumble. Anyone who believes in me causing a fellow Christian to sin. Now that word translated sin, that's the word skandalizo in Greek, and it means to cause to be brought to a downfall. Perhaps a better translation, and some translations use this word to stumble, and I think that's a better translation because it's more of a, a guiding or a leading or tripping someone up into sin. Anyone who causes a Christian to stumble. Has anyone ever watched those videos of people walking and tripping? How do, we, how do I react? I laugh. Sometimes it's not funny, but I still laugh. And I particularly enjoy those videos of people who are distracted with their smartphones as they're walking and disaster is ahead. Perhaps you've seen the one of the gal at the mall who walks right into the fountain. Or the guy who was walking down the street and almost walks right into a loose bear. I don't even know how the bear got loose. That's a different video. I laugh at people who are distracted by their phones. But you want to know the truth? It almost happened to me once. Right here in this very church, if you've ever been to the Harvest Kids hallway, you know that the Harvest Kid hallway curbs. You also know, or you should know, that naturally as we walk, even when we're not really paying attention, we naturally walk in a straight line. So one day I was looking at my cell phone while walking and suddenly the pressure of the wall is pushing into my shoulder and I'm, what's going, I was trying to walk straight, the wall was trying to curve and I wasn't going to win that. But that's kind of the idea here about stumbling, veering off, brought to a downfall. Scripturally, it's being led into sin. It's a person that was going this way, following the Lord, doing well, and then through the influence of others, they get off track and they head in a direction away from the Lord. I could make my application today very simple and just say, don't be the smartphone that distracts people from their walk. Don't cause a fellow Christian to sin, but I'm going to build on that. Because what does Jesus say about these people? He says this, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Ouch. Causing someone to stumble, to get off track with their walk with the Lord, to be led into sin, that is a serious offense in the eyes of God. The Bible says it would be better to hang a millstone around that person's neck and throw them in the sea. Now, the millstone here, Jesus is talking about a large stone that was used to grind meal into flour. These stones were so large that they were actually turned by donkeys. The donkey was hooked up to this stone, and it was, and it was walked around, and it would grind that, stone, that uh, meal into flour. So if you think about this, certainly a more than ample instrument to drag somebody to the depths of the sea. 
But this is how serious God takes this notion of causing someone to stumble. Now, you might be thinking, I would never cause anyone to stumble. I would never cause anyone to sin. I would never encourage that. And I know where you're coming from, but let's stop and think. Are we sure? What might this look like? Well, this could be directly tempting someone to sin. It could be direct temptation, tempting them to lie, encouraging them to cheat on their taxes, encouraging them to gossip. It could look like encouraging someone intentionally to sin, yes. It could also look like doing something or encouraging someone to go against their conscience. Maybe it's not a sin, but it's against their conscience, and we trying to or wanting to participate in something where we're dragging somebody along with us. 1 Corinthians 8 actually tells us to be sensitive to others' consciences on matters where they might be weak. We're not to encourage somebody to do something that would wound their conscience. And this can also be done indirectly, though. It could be indirectly tempting someone, for instance, allowing our attitude to affect someone in a sinful way. Maybe we don't have the intention of causing them to sin, but for whatever reason, we're being argumentative one day. We're provoking someone to anger. You know, Ephesians 6.4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's, that's for fathers and children, but the relationship goes beyond that. It's brother to brother and sister to sister and brother to sister. Do not provoke anyone to anger. We are intent, if we are intentionally argumentative or if we're intentionally irritable or we're just plain mean or whatever, that could cause another person to stumble. Now, you might say to yourself, they're responsible for their actions. True. But you're responsible for yours. If we are encouraging someone toward ungodliness by our actions, we are at fault in leading them astray. Speaking of setting a bad example here, let me just give you an, an illustration. Let's say that somebody sees my anger. Let's say Ryan Jackson gets angry, does something sinful. That person could walk away and say, you know, the pastor got angry and sinned. Why can't I? It's that whole idea of our attitudes and our actions being sinful and leading others astray. It's a lot easier to lead others astray than we might at first think. And the truth is, we're all guilty of this. In some form or fashion, I have provoked people. I have set bad examples. I have sinned and invited others to join in. Let me give you a story. When I was in college, this was many years ago, there was a group of us guys who used to break into the library after hours to play computer games. And we encouraged each other to do that. Now, you might on the one hand think, oh, that's harmless, you know, silly 20-year-olds, but it was deliberate sin, and it was deliberate encouraging others to sin. It was breaking rules. It doesn't matter that it was a lot of fun. <laughs> we get in the way when we encourage others to sin. So what should we do about this? We should carefully, prayerfully seek only to encourage people to follow the Lord. Carefully prayerfully seek to encourage others to follow the Lord. Let's let our example be one of faithful 
obedience. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Seek to be a godly example to others. And when we fail, for beloved, we will fail. Repent. And if necessary, apologize to those we influenced. Now, one more thing before we leave this topic. We need to take this seriously. Jesus took it seriously with, with his, the way he expressed this. We need to be serious in this area of leading others into sin, whether we do it consciously or unconsciously, because it's an offense to God. Take this seriously, but at the same time, don't beat yourself up. As I've been talking to you about this, doubtless some of you have memories of things that you did or attitudes that you had or words that you said that encouraged others into sin and you feel guilty about that. Let me just say, we should feel the pang of wrong. We should feel that, yes. But we should also feel the sense of God's amazing grace that covers all our wrongs. So let's take this seriously. Let's strive to do better for the future, absolutely, but let's not beat ourselves up at the same time. Admit that we've had failures, lean on grace, and keep moving forward. We get in the way when we encourage others to sin. Secondly, we get in the way of God's work when we fail to mortify sin in our lives. We get in the way of God's work when we fail to mortify sin in our own lives. Follow along as I read from verse 43 on. Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We get out of the way of God's work when we fail to mortify sin in our own lives. Now, these are radical words from Jesus. Radical words from Jesus. They're meant to shock us. The idea of, of taking an, an instrument and hacking off a limb, that's meant to shock us. But let me just explain that Jesus is using what we call hyperbole. He is intentionally exaggerating to make a point. And his point is, sin is serious. And whatever's causing you to sin, you need to cut it off. He's not saying that we literally cut off body parts, okay? He's not saying that. But at the same time, he is trying to communicate that even the most basic things to humans, like hands, feet, and eyes, are not as important as living a life of holiness. Jesus essentially is making three statements here, but they're really one statement. He says, if your hand, foot, eye, causes you to sin, and that's the same Greek word from verse 42, to stumble. If it causes you to sin, to stumble. If that happens, cut it off. And that literally, that's what the word means. Cut it off. Cut off whatever's causing sin. Get rid of it. Now, the use of these three body parts, hand, foot, and eye, signify all of life. They represent what people do. They represent where people go. And they represent what people see. Jesus is saying, if any of these things that you do, places you go, and things that you see cause you to sin, 
get rid of it. Why? Because it's better that you enter life crippled, lame, or half blind than to be whole and go to hell. Now, what does he mean when he says enter life crippled, lame, or blind? He means it's better to live without those things that make you sin. It's better to live without the things that make you sin, even if it's inconvenient. Better to be inconvenienced in this life and enter life, that is, enter heaven, than to be uninconvenienced and enter into hell. Now, what might this look like? This could look like several things. It could look like simple things, like avoiding certain TV shows, avoiding certain YouTube channels. It could mean ceasing from all social media. That's what it could mean. Or it could mean some pretty heavy things. It could mean staying away from certain relationships that cause us to sin. It could mean quitting a job because the influence and the boss and the things that are happening there are causing us to sin. It could mean those heavy things, those drastic things. And I would say to you, if you're in those situations and you're seriously considering Staying away from a relationship or quitting a job, I would encourage you, bathe that in prayer. Talk to good, mature Christians beforehand, but I'm not gonna deny it might come to that. The point that Jesus is making is that striving against sin can mean taking extreme measures. And as Christians, we need to fight against sin and we need to take that fight seriously. I remember I was watching a video It was a video of Lecrae. He was giving a devotional. And he was talking about how some Christians in their small group, they come back week after week and they just say the same thing. I messed up again. And the next week they come and I messed up again. And the next week they come and I messed up again. And Lecrae asked, where is your war effort? This is a battle. How are you fighting this? What are you getting rid of to maintain holiness? And don't get me wrong here, there's grace. Oh, there's grace. Oh, God forgives. As far as the east is from the west, he forgives. His grace is deep and wide and complete and total. But God's grace isn't meant to be trampled. We are to fight sin with all we have, mortify it. Now, this idea of mortifying or mortification of sin, that's nothing new to us. Romans 8.13 tells us to put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death the deeds of the body. And that's the idea behind this word mortify or mortification. We are commanded to put to death sin in our lives. It's a radical fight against the lusts of the flesh. And this is what Jesus commanded, that we cut off anything that leads us into sin. And this is gonna look different for different people. Some of you might not have any trouble with this or that, and others of you might. We all stumble in different ways. Some of you might need to cut off things that others don't need to. But regardless, all of us have to do this in some way in our lives. Now, if I stopped right there, everything I just said was true. But if I stopped right there, message over, cut off the things that you need to, to, make, to that cause you to sin, you would either be greatly disheartened or you would feel pretty good about yourself. Some of you would be greatly disheartened because this week you have struggled. 
You have turned to sin many, many times and you're disheartened by it. Others of you might feel pretty good because you've had a pretty good week. We need to be careful. Why? Because we can so easily turn this idea of mortification of sin into a legalistic system. It's so easy. Okay, don't do such and such, stay away from that, cut that off, good to go. See, we can turn this into a works-based righteousness if we're not careful. Christ says to cut off the areas that cause sin, but we can't do that in and of ourselves, or if we try to do that in and of ourselves, we'll come up with a system of legalism. So this leads to the question, how? How do we mortify sin without succumbing to a system of legalism? How do I get rid of the sin that's in my life without turning it into some sort of self-righteous system of do's and don'ts? Paul answers that question in Romans 8. We looked at verse 13, put off or put to death the deeds of the body. But now let's go back and read the verse. In fact, let's go and read verses 12. So this is Romans 8, 12 through 13. Paul writes, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The way we do this is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I read an article this week from a man named Eric Raymond, who's an author for the Gospel Coalition, and he writes this. How do we mortify sin? We mortify sin by examining our hearts, minds, and lives in the light of the Word of God and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When we see or a fellow believer helps us to see something out of step with the Bible, then we work to put it to death. You might say, what are the practical steps here? I'll give it to you in two, 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 two phrases. Stop the sin, start the virtue. Stop the sin, start the virtue. We have to put to death the sin, stop it, but then we have to put on the virtue. We have to replace it. Ephesians 4, and 24 says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Put off sin, put on righteousness. So example, if lying is a problem, guess what? Put off lying, stop it, kill it, but then put on truth telling. If hate is a problem, put off hate, stop it, kill it, but then put on love. And on and on the process goes always, always, always in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lean on him. Otherwise, you're just trusting to modify your behavior using only the strength of the flesh. And not only will you fail, but you will never achieve true change. I heard this week that Benjamin Franklin he wanted to cultivate virtues in his life. It's a good thing. He wanted to cultivate virtues in his life. He wanted to live rightly, so he created a list of virtues that he wanted to master. His plan was, I'm gonna take a virtue at a time, I'm gonna master that one, and then I'm gonna move on to the next. Kind of sounds like a good plan, but it didn't pan out. It proved much more difficult than he'd anticipated. Why? Because he was operating out of the flesh. 
Galatians 5, 16, one of my favorite verses, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The key to all of this walking by the Spirit question, though I'm sorry, the key to all of this walking by the Spirit is to submit to that Spirit, but question, how do I know? How do I know when I'm walking by the Spirit? How do I know that I'm doing that? Well, let me assure you first that every believer has the Holy Spirit. Don't ever doubt that. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The way to walk by the Spirit is to yield to him, to yield our lives to him. It's a moment by moment as I go through my day yielding to the Spirit. It helps to say a prayer. Spirit, help me. I assure you it's not a feeling. It's not some ritualistic thing. There's none of that. It's simply yielding to him and then believing that he's helping you. That's what walking by the Spirit is. Now, why do we do this? Why do we go to such great lengths to mortify sin? It's hard. Yo. It is. Fighting my flesh is not easy. It's a battle And newsflash, battles are hard. Why do we put forth the energy to do this? We do this for two reasons. One, it's commanded. We do it out of obedience. Jesus says it right here in our text. And if we call him Lord, then we should obey him as Lord. He calls us to mortify sin. We do this out of obedience. But secondly, we do this because if we don't, sin will take over. Sin will suck the joy and strength out of you. It seems fun for a time. It feels good for a season, but slowly sin sucks your life away. The famous Puritan John Owens, he wrote a treatment that's called The Mortification of Sin. And in it, he famously writes this line. He says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now, before we move on from this passage, I need to deal with verse 48 because you may have read it or heard it and thought, that's a little bit strange. It is. But even before I get to verse 48, I want to bring up another topic. Jesus, throughout this passage, has been talking about hell. He mentions hell several times. And it almost, if you're not reading this carefully, it almost could sound like, you know, if I do a sin, I'm going to go into hell. And if you're thinking that way, that should throw up a red flag because that would be every single one of us. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are headed to hell unless they repent and turn to Jesus. But is Jesus saying here, you know, if you commit a sin, if you stumble, you're just automatically going to hell? No, that's not what he's saying. Actually, as you read this closely, Jesus is acknowledging the human struggle. He's assuming there are things in our lives that are going to cause us to sin and we should cut them off. There is an acknowledgement of the human struggle, and Jesus is saying, this is how you deal with sin. If you choose not to deal with sin, well, that gives us a glimpse into your heart. If you don't want to deal with sin, that should be a red flag too. Because if you don't want to deal with sin, then maybe you have never truly embraced Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for your sin. You might say, well, how can you say that? Because everyone who's embraced Christ has a desire to rid themselves of sin. That doesn't mean we don't struggle. 
That doesn't mean we don't want sin sometimes. There are times, I'll be honest, I want sin sometimes. But it means that deep inside there is a desire to be rid of it. Somebody say, give me a Bible verse. Excellent. Romans 7, 18. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do right, but not the ability to carry it out. Every true believer will have a deep desire to be rid of sin. So with all that in mind, let's deal with verse 48. Jesus says, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That verse, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, that's actually a reference to the very last verse in Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 24 reads, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And that's what Jesus is alluding to here in Mark 9, 48. And it's given rise to some weird speculations. I actually heard one time there's a theory that people believe from this verse that when you die, you turn into a worm. That's junk theology, okay? What's going on here is that Jesus is simply describing a place of decay and torment. That's what he's doing. In fact, the word that Jesus has been using for hell in our passage is the word Gehenna, and it's a Greek form of the Hebrew word Gehinnom, which means the Valley of Hinnom. And this Valley of Hinnom was a real valley. It was on the southern side of Jerusalem, and it was a dump. It was literally a trash heap. And there was a history to this valley. Interestingly enough, this valley was where apostate Israelites sacrificed their children to the false god Molech before King Josiah put a stop to that in 2 Kings 23. And then after that, this valley just became this dump. It became this junkyard where their people would throw trash and carcasses and human waste and all kinds of things ended up there and they burned it. And the fire burned there continually. It was never put out. So then fast forward during the time between the Old and New Testament, the Valley of Hinnom became symbolic for divine punishment. It was a reference to hell, Gehenna. So when Jesus says, where their worm does not die, what he's saying is, hell is a place of never-ending decay. Worms, maggots, things that represent decay, things that would have been in the Valley of Hinnom, symbolically represent eternal decay. Hell is spiritual decay and torment, and that's why Jesus says, better to go in life maimed than to go into hell whole. By the way, one other thing I need to address real quick, because I know somebody out there has spotted it. You may have noticed that verses 44 and 46 are missing. Don't panic. We've dealt with this issue before. It's a matter of manuscripts. Which manuscripts are more reliable, okay? There are older, more reliable manuscripts of the book of Mark that don't have verses 44 and 46, so the editors of the ESV did not include them. And if you're curious, what does verse 44 and 46 say? They're just a simple repeat of verse 48. That's all they are. Likely what happened is that a scribe who was copying added those to make Jesus' words more poetic. That's probably what happened there. But the point, don't miss the point. 
Jesus is saying hell is a place of eternal spiritual torment and decay. And that leads me to what could be the most important question you've ever been asked. Are you headed to life after death? Will you enter eternal life or eternal decay when you die? If you have never trusted Jesus as Savior, may I ask, why not? Could it be that you don't want to give up your own life? You don't want to give up the sin that you enjoy? You don't want to give up doing life your way? You don't want to cut it off? Could that be the reason? Jesus says that that path will end in unquenchable fire. Let me assure you, despite teaching you may have heard in our day and age, hell is real. And people who don't trust Jesus go there. Don't pass up the opportunity to receive Jesus as your Savior. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus. That means stop your sin, turn from your sin, and put your trust in Jesus. And even right now, in the quietness of your heart, you could say something like, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I believe that your death and resurrection are payment for what I need. Let me encourage you also, come talk to me after the service. We're talking about getting out of the way. We're in the way when we encourage others to sin. We're in the way when we fail to mortify sin in our lives. Finally, last point, we get out of the way when we submit to being a radical sacrifice. Look at verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You could call these the most seasoned verses of our passage. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now, what's he talking about? Jesus, he's switching things up a little bit. He's using the language of sacrifices. When an Old Testament Israelite offered a sacrifice, they used fire. You know that. They put a sacrifice on an altar and they burned it. And that, but so this fire in verse 49, this is not the fire of judgment that Jesus was talking about in verses 43 through 48. It's the fire of sacrifice. And furthermore, salt was used in certain sacrifices. In Leviticus 2.13, Moses writes, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant of your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Jesus is saying, by mortifying the sin in your lives, you are offering up yourself as a sacrifice. By fighting sin, by mortifying our sin, we are being sacrifices. Romans 12.1 would call us living sacrifices. Jesus continues this idea of salt in verse 50. Look at verse 50 again. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He continues talking about salt. Why? Salt played an important role in the ancient world. It was used for preserving food, for flavoring food, and it was used as a cleaning agent. And interestingly enough, 
if salt was harvested too near the Dead Sea, it could be contaminated. It would have lost its saltiness, so to speak. And so what Jesus is doing is he's using that illustration to say, so too the Christian who doesn't mortify sin in their life, they've lost their saltiness. They fail to be a radical sacrifice. Jesus uses the idea of salt here to communicate to his disciples the need for them to be living sacrifices by being obedient. Salt is a metaphor for self-sacrifice. If we are mortifying sin in our lives and striving for righteousness, then we are being living sacrifices. So Jesus wants his disciples, and by extension us, to have salt in ourselves and to be at peace with one another. In other words, like I've been saying, be a living sacrifice, mortify the sin, strive for righteousness, be seasoned. Have salt in yourselves, be different from the world, and be at peace with one another. And I love that, be at peace with one another. Because what that does is it draws the perfect conclusion to this whole conversation. That draws a circle all the way back to verse 34 where we saw the disciples arguing over who was the greatest. Jesus has just gone full circle. He says, if you want to be great, you got to be a servant. To be a servant, you got to welcome the least. Don't stop others from serving. Mortify sin in your life. Be the living sacrifice. And what's the result? The result is instead of all that arguing, you're going to have peace among yourselves. So here's my challenge. Be salty. Be salty in three ways. First, be a preservative by preserving the purity of the gospel. Don't mix anything with Jesus. There is no Jesus and. It doesn't work. It's not true. There is no I need Jesus and my hobby. I need Jesus and this. I need Jesus and that. I need Jesus and you fill in the blank. There is nothing. There is no Jesus and. Cling to Jesus and add nothing to your faith. Secondly, be salty by being flavorful by allowing others to taste the difference that Christ makes in you. Do you remember several weeks ago, I talked about having that 40% variance. Do you remember that? We need to be at least 40% different from the world or they're not even gonna take notice. Remember that in your relationships or when you're at the store or when you're in class or wherever. Be salty, be that 40% variance. Thirdly, be salty by being a cleaning agent. Let us clean one another. The book of Hebrews tells us to spur one another on to love and good works. Be an encouragement to each other to keep on keeping on in the faith. Be a friend who gently sharpens others to be more like Christ. So be salty. Be that living sacrifice. And by doing that, we get out of the way and become useful to our Lord and Savior. I've said it before, I'm gonna say it again. What Jesus is saying is radical. He calls us to a life that is totally radical. Now, how could he do that? 
how could Jesus call us to such a radical, such a difficult, such a, a hard fight? Because Jesus lived the most radical life. Do you realize Jesus never had to cut anything out of his life? Why? Because nothing ever made him stumble. Jesus can call us to a radical life of cutting out sin because he himself lived a life completely free of it. Theologians call this simply the sinlessness of Jesus. He never once committed a sin, not once. Jesus' testimony to this, he says in John 8, 46, he was speaking to his enemies and he said, which one of you convicts me of sin? If Jesus' enemies could not convict him of sin, that is an airtight argument to the testimony of his sinlessness. Jesus also says in that same chapter, John 8, 28, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The sinlessness of Jesus. He was sinless, and this is essential. It's essential to the character of Jesus because if he had not been sinless, first of all, he would not have been God. Secondly, he would not have been able to be the substitute lamb on our behalf. He would not have been able to die for your sins and mine because he would have had to have died for his own sins. He could not have been our substitute. He would not have been able to take our place. So Jesus can say such radical things about sin because he lived a perfect life without sin and he provided the way for us to be washed of our sin. He took our sin upon himself on that cross and he died in your place. And church, that is your savior. So look to his perfection. Look to his sacrifice that covers all your sin and shame. Then through his power, Deal with the sin in your life, and that is how we get out of the way. Pray with me. Jesus, gracious Jesus, thank you for your incredible sacrifice that offers us forgiveness of sin and eternal life with you. Lord, we need you. We can't do this life without you. Sin is crouching at our door and each and every day we need you to help us cut it off. This is a radical teaching that challenges us to fight against everything that feels so natural and yet it's not natural. Sin is abnormal. It's not what we were meant to know. So God, give us strength to overcome. Show us where we still have sin in our lives and give us the strength to fight. Lord, if anyone here is hearing this gospel message for the first time, please give them the courage to embrace you by faith. Lord Jesus, we thank you, we praise you, and we love you, and it's in that awesome name, the name of Jesus. Amen.